Amen. You can have a seat. And kids, as you get ready to go to your class, I want to, kids, how many of you have ever been on an airplane? Yeah, I, being on an airplane is amazing. There's a couple wonderful things you can get. So here's some insider info, because it depends on the airplane. So some of them don't have these things, but you can get these pillows. And these pillows are amazing because they look like a horseshoe, but it just surrounds your neck. And anywhere you lay, you uh, won't get a creak in your neck when you fall asleep. So next time you're on an airplane, make sure to ask your parents or the person helping you to get you a pillow. And then most of the, the seats have these screens on the front. And those are pretty amazing because you just touch them. And if you touch them enough, the sign will come up and you just ask your dad, say, it says all I need is your CC number, whatever that is. Just get him to type it in and you can watch as many movies as you want. It's unlimited. It's, it's amazing. And then they bring you like peanuts and things. And uh, this morning you're going to be talking about the love of God. And parents, we're going through the fruits of the spirit and it's, it's love this morning. But one thing I want you to think about is the love of God in Christ, Christ's love for us, is uh, it's kind of like being on the airplane, but it's not like the pillow. His love doesn't make a bumpy ride smooth for you. Uh, his love is not like the TV screen to make a boring ride a little more bearable. And his love's not like peanuts just to kind of fill you up till you get to where you're going. His love for you is the engine. It's the engine. So you cannot have peanuts, and if you have a good engine, you're okay. And so his love for you is the engine that drives everything in your life. So kids, as you uh, stand up and teachers, you can make your way. That's what you're going to be talking about this morning. Christ, the love of Christ for us in the fruits of the Spirit. And as they kind of get going, a couple of housekeeping things, parents, uh, they're going to be uh, sent home with this kind of report card. It's a love report card. And uh, it'll go through 1 Corinthians and talk about all the ways that we can see love manifested in our life. It's patient. It's kind. It's, it's all of these things. And one of the things they're going to get this morning is a daily checklist because what we want to see is the fruits of the Spirit evidence in our lives. So you kind of help them uh, on the daily checklist. And our theme is that before you can express these, you have to experience these. So we want them to experience all these fruits before they can uh, express it. And so as they get make their way, uh, adults and everyone remaining, if you'll turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And this summer, as we're transitioning as a church, we're going to be spending... Um, several weeks just marinating and meditating on the book of Ephesians. It's one of the most beautiful and grand books in all of the Bible that gives us a vision of what the church is, who she is, what she's supposed to be. And we, what we want is it to shape who we are and what we do. And so we're going to be in Ephesians. Um, I don't know how long. I can't make promises. I, I don't know. I, I thought we'd be in verse 15 now, and we're just on three, so I don't know. But we'll be through it through, most, uh, through this year. And as we look, we're going to look at verses 3 through 6, uh, chapter 1. And I had to just confess a certain sense of overwhelm. Like when I look at verses um, it's 3 through 14, and in, in chapter 1, uh, when you start at verse 3 and go to the end of chapter 1, you realize it's just two sentences. This long chapter is just two sentences, and it's two of the longest sentences, not only in the entire Bible, but in all of uh, ancient literature. And then the first 3 through 14 is one long sentence. It's 202 words. No English translation tries to do it. Uh, and what you have is you almost have, and the whole chapter is one of the densest, richest 
most profound theological chapters in, in all of the Bible, and it's all prayer and praise. It's prayer. It's praise. And what you have from verses 3 through 14 is this explosion from the Apostle Paul of just praise and thanks and this, 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 this flood, this tidal wave of praise. And I have a just certain sense of trying to get my mind wrapped around it of just overwhelm. And it's not like I haven't had any experience with this. I actually had a Ph.D. seminar. So for my Ph.D. seminar, I spent the entire semester uh, analyzing the Greek text of Ephesians with one of the leading Pauline scholars in the world and still sit down and look at this and say, I can't get my mind around it. It's, it's overwhelming. I don't know how to, how to take it all in. Because what you have with Paul, it's just this flood of beauty and glory. It's almost like, have you ever been around like a five-year-old when they've just had this experience that they can't even process or don't have the linguistic ability to explain what's happened to them? It's like when we took our girls to Disney for the first time, like for three days, they couldn't even talk coherently. Because you're just like, how was it? What'd you do? And it was just, ah, we saw Cinderella and then the fireworks and then boom and then ice cream and then and then what they needed is like a parent to kind of come over and help like navigate the the narrative well yeah then we did this and then that because they just don't have the verbal capacity to explain their happiness and this is what you almost experience with Paul the only problem is he's not a five-year-old the apostle Paul is one of the most brilliant men ever to live about 30 years ago, the BBC did this thing called the Brains Trust where they went through and did the, the, uh, the, the most brilliant people in history. And they very rightly put the Apostle Paul as one of them. And even him, he, he doesn't have the ability to um, kind of explain or, or unravel. And so it's just this, this flood of praise. And so we're going to spend a couple weeks looking at it. There's, there's a number of different ways you could break down verses 3 through 14. Kind of some of the main verbs, a number of different ways. We're going to look at the three different key aspects of the activity of the Trinity that we see here. Because it's, it's a song of praise for salvation. And he praises, and kind of one of the things, that, you know, it's, it's God who lavishes, then the Son who accomplishes, and then the Holy Spirit who establishes. And so God lavishes, the Son accomplishes, the Holy Spirit establishes. And we're going to look at each action of the, the Trinity as they bring about our salvation. And um, it's, it's, so we're going to look first this morning at uh, what God does, how God lavishes or chooses us. And what you have here in this whole thing, though, I just want you to keep in mind, it's like this explosion of blessing and thankfulness and praise for these gifts that the Lord has given. And so I'm going to be reading. We're going to start in verse 3, go through verse 6. Um, if you're following along for the next several weeks, it's going to be kind of tough to follow along in a certain version because the version I'm going to be using is the, uh, it's the, uh, the BIV, which is the Ben International Version. So it's just going to be kind of, it's almost like an amalgamation because what you do is Paul gives you just certain terms that um, it's just, it, it's really a translator's nightmare to try and make sense, or not make sense, but try and encompass because every decision you make on the words, it's, there's different shades of nuances. So I want you to kind of bring some of those things out. So let's look at verse 3, 4, 5, and 6. So praise be, or blessed be, blessed, but it's praise. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenlies 
with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so this is the theme of chapters 1 through 3. He's, gonna, he's going to unleash this tidal wave of praise because God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And so that's why we entitled the series The Church uh, on Earth as it is in Heaven. The first thing is to show you what's the heavenly reality that's true of you if you're in Christ. And then in chapter 4, he's going to shift and say, now as a prisoner of the Lord, walk worthy of the, this calling. So how do you make that heavenly reality an earthly reality? And so that's kind of the theme. And then as we go through all through this section, one of the, one of the challenging things is he, he uses pronouns, he, his, but it's hard to understand, all right, who's he talking about? Is he talking about the Father or Jesus or the Spirit? Who's, who's, who's the he? So I'll kind of fill in these blanks. So verse 4, because, or for, or even as, because he, God, chose us in him, Christ, before the, the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his, God's, sight or in his presence. In love, he, God, predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his, God's, pleasure and will to the praise of his, God's, glorious grace, which he, God, blessed us in his beloved one, or in the beloved son, or in his um, beloved son, or blessed us, or lavished us, or poured out on us. So what we're going to do in the, the sentence to kind of help us try and kind of take a mental lasso just kind of around this reality. We're going to be working on this sentence, and uh, the sentence is on the back of your, your uh, handout there. But the sentence that I want you to think about is that God has chosen us to be his family that is holy for his glory. And so we're going to kind of walk through each of those. And kind of before we even jump into that, just to kind of address at least the, the theological elephant in the room in this, in this chapter, as you notice at the very beginning, he, he says it over and over, God has chosen us, and then he's predestined us. And I'm not really going to go into, I'm not going to argue for, kind of go into the biblical doctrine of election or predestination. If that's something that just intellectually you're uh, wrestling with or would like more discussion or just kind of ask, hey, help me kind of think through this, it does bring up certain intellectual challenges and difficulties. And if that's something you have, I'd love to kind of help you um, think biblically through those things. I'm not really going to kind of argue for it because Paul doesn't hear. He just announces it and declares it. And then we're going to kind of move on, but I do want to recognize that if that's something you wrestle with, and even the first words of verse 4, because he chose us, is like, a, like a, a, a lyrical roadblock that you just can't get by, then we're going to help you kind of think through those things. But uh, at least for now, just kind of, kind of go over it as, as what Paul wants to do. He wants to draw you into the beauty and the glory and the sweetness of this uh, reality. So let's look at these three things that we see here, that he chose us, he chose us to be a family that is holy for his glory. So think about the first thing, and what's, I want you to see that in verse 4 and verse 5. You know, he chose us in him before the creation of the world, time, so location in him, time before the creation of the world, uh, purpose to be holy and blameless in his presence, God's presence. And then in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons. So to be in his family, 
So think about that, that idea of adoption, adoption as sons. Now, in the ancient world, fathers, and now that I have two daughters, this makes a lot of sense. But in the ancient world, the two things that fathers could, they would choose is they would choose if they didn't have an heir, you would adopt a son as an heir, and it was, it was something you would choose. And in Greco-Roman culture, you, you would never adopt, you didn't adopt babies. So you adopted someone who was already grown and had proven themselves to be worthy to inherit. So it was really only done by the nobility. And as somebody who's uh, proven themselves to be worthy to inherit your estate. Because, you know, um, uh, girls could not adopt. Females could not inherit, I mean. And so you would adopt a son, and the father would be the one to choose his heir, in essence. And then the father would also choose the bride for his sons. So uh, that doesn't sound like a bad idea. Now, I mean, think about the father choosing the, uh, the bride for sons, and they would, the, the parents would arrange these things. And uh, what you'll see here is really important. So both men and women are going to have to do some uh, mental adjustments because Paul first says you're adopted as sons. It's not sons and daughters, it's sons. So everyone is a son, and that's really good news because it's only the sons who could inherit so what he's saying is everyone has an inheritance. So you can inherit. You, uh, and the, heaven, the inheritance in verse 13 is this heavenly reality that you get to experience. But then in chapter 5, he's going to say that not only are we, you're all sons, you're also all daughters, because everyone is a bride. So you see, everybody, male or female, has to make somewhat of a mental adjustment to get the, the potency and power of the images. But the adoption as sons, in one sense, this gift of adoption is really one of the greatest gifts that salvation brings. All the other gifts are kind of pathways to get you, get you here. And J.I. Packer says this is the macro blessing that every other blessing in salvation secures for you because it brings you into the family. It means you who had no family and once were cast out are now brought in into his family. And you become an heir, a joint heir with Christ. Um, and you inherit and you come in. And there's a number of things here. It's kind of a couple just kind of things to help you think of. Uh, The beauty of adoption, the gift, it's, it's legal and it's relational. So there's a legal component, means now it's not just a informal kind of come-as-you-go relationship, it's legal. If you remember my good friend, uh, who's pastor in Claremont, Caleb, who came and preached for me here when I was uh, so sick on Easter, and uh, he told a wonderful story that he tells about a couple in his church who uh, he went with them, they were having just long, long story, difficult, but finally got to the point where they could adopt their, um, their child, and he went with them to the courtroom and just got shivers as the judge was looking at the family, and uh, he said, uh, today, this is the, what the judge said, he said, today you're asking the court to add the final order for adoption. If the court enters that order in the eyes of the law, Jaden will have all the same rights, claims, and benefits as if he were naturally born. Do you understand that? And among those rights and benefits means being a full heir to you. And Caleb said when he just heard that read, it was just like a window into the gospel opened up that he had never seen before because he said, that's me. I was born, according to Ephesians 2, as a child of wrath and disobedience, and because of the blood of Christ, I have been brought in and adopted into this family, and now legally, I'm a full heir with the Son. 
So there's a legal reality that can hold you, but there's also a relational reality that can stabilize you and encourage you. It's not just a cold legal formality. It's also a sweet uh, relational reality. So now what it means is you have intimacy and access. Now you can come to him as a good, good father. And that's one of the deepest, most profound truths that whenever it lands on you, it can change you. Because you, you interact with God as a good father. It means you have intimacy with him. You have access to him. You know, the old, well, it's a really old joke now, but the joke when Abraham Lincoln was president was that there's only one person in Washington who can go anywhere he wants. And you know who that was? It was Tad, his son. Abraham Lincoln's son, but he could run around and go anywhere. He had access to anything, didn't need any, any clearance or any badge because he, uh, he's a son. And so you have intimacy and you have access. And the other things it brings, it brings both, it comes with a price, but also brings privileges. Anyone who's ever adopted knows the tremendous price that it costs and what we're going to see in verse 6, 7, and 8, 7, and 8, the price that Jesus paid so we could be adopted in is price, but the privileges you now become a legal heir and have an inheritance. But it also brings comfort and security. It's one of the most precious doctrines because it brings you comfort. It's for your security. You know, one of the things he's going to tell them is, he says, God has chosen you before the foundation of the world. Now remember in, the, in Ephesus, they were um, obsessed with magic and astrology. And so many of them thought like their fate was fixed in the stars by this cruel, impersonal reality. And he says, no, no, it's held by a personal father who's good and loves you. And it would have been such a, a tremendous a comfort for them. That's what Paul wants you to feel. He wants you in feeling the sovereignty of God to be comforted that uh, he has you and he's going to hold you. And uh, in essence, you can't ruin this thing because he's running it. And so as we just pause there and think about it, you're drawn into a family. Do you relate to God as your father? Or do you view him more like an employer? You know, think about employers, even the best employers, you know, there's kind of a limit. At some point, you keep pushing the limits, and at some point, you can just get fired, even with the best of them. But think about what does it take with the best of fathers, you know, what's the limit? When do they disinherit you or you lose them as a father? And it doesn't happen, and that's what he is going to show here is settling, it's stabilizing. So he is, um, one of the great gifts is that we, he chose us to be a part of the family, but the key aspect of this family is that it's holy. Look back in verse 3, or verse 4, because God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and to be blameless in his sight. This is the mark of the family that it's holy. Now, for us, we live in a world where even the concept of holiness, um, we kind of have to redeem it or resurrect it. Because we even say, have phrases like, oh, they're, so, they're holier than thou. It means they think they're pompous, or they think they're better, or they're pretentious, or stuck up. And that, that's not what this concept of biblical holiness is. You know, one of the phrases used throughout the Old Testament is the beauty of his holiness, Although the Psalms, I want to see the beauty of his holiness. And his holiness, holiness is the characteristic of being distinct, of being set apart, of being separated, of being different. And one of the things that this is telling us here is that this family is going to be marked by being different, distinct. And all of chapter 5 is all about all the different ways that you now are part of the family of the light, so you're different from those in the darkness. 
and you're, you're distinct. And one of the marks of this family is that it's, it's set apart. You know, in one sense, the whole goal of this family is that when they see the children, they see the father. Or that when, when the world sees them, they see him. You know, I never can tell with babies. I'm the worst to tell. So like, we'll, you know, I'll, I'll see Andrew's sweet little baby and look at him. And then Cynthia asks, you know, who does he look like? Mom or dad? I'm like, I have no idea. And, but some of you are really good at deciding. You can just see there's just certain kids. You say, ah, oh, there's no doubt whose child that is. And that's the way the church is meant to be. Where when the world sees, it's no doubt who, what family they belong to. Because they reflect his character and his ways, who he is, his peace, his love, his justice, his righteousness is reflected. When they see them, they see him. And it's contra the world. So you think about what is marked by the world. It's marked by self-promotion and power, self-sufficiency. And it's a dog-eat-dog world where it's the survival of the fittest. And so this is not how our family is. It's not, um, it's self-sacrifice, it's service, it's care for the poor and the weak. And I think one of the things you can see is the way, um, you know, there is nothing more beautiful than a community that's really, by by the grace of God, reflecting these things. And all summer, one of the things we're going to be doing is kind of wrestling with, all right, why does why has God put us here? What's our unique calling for this community? What does God specifically want us to do here in Lake Nona? And we, Cynthia and I, we've lived here for two and a half years, and we love living here. There's such a unique kind of excitement where you can say there's, there's kind of a unique energy where uh, the future's ahead and there's a feeling that there's a brightness. But, um, I mean, you've all kind of seen the marketing. Like, the uh, life is lived better here. And part of the ambition is to, um, in one sense, is to create the context of the Garden of Eden with no God. So a life of innovation and sustainability and healthy living. My favorite marketing sign in the history of marketing is coming into Lori Park. I don't know if they still have it, but do you remember the sign? If it's still there, we'll look as you go home. But it's coming kind of this way. I don't know what direction that is coming. Well, I don't even know if that's right. It's coming this way. And it said, the grass really is greener here. You remember that sign? I love that sign. Because that's exactly, the, no, it, it, it's, you're not deceived. The grass really is greener here. And you can even say, like, all of the ambitions are good ambitions for health, a life filled with thriving, but it's all horizontal. It's horizontally directed. And that's one of the reasons we've been working on our logo, and one of the reasons I love our logo, Bethany Emerson, wherever she has been kind of helping us work on it. One of the things, I want you to notice, because we've kind of taken images of the waves, because the waves, the Lake Nona waves, are all horizontal, and turn them vertical and put them up, because you will not ever experience any of those realities if your only focus is, hor- uh, is horizontal. It has to be vertical. You look here and Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father who has blessed us in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. See, every one of us wants to be a part of a community that's filled with human flourishing. But unless you get the vertical relationship right, all of the horizontal things will never happen. It does not profit you anything to gain the entire world horizontally and lose your soul vertically. 
So we want to take those and get them up, lift them up, point them Godward, because that's the only place ultimately that those longings can be satisfied. And that's one of the things we see here. He says this family is to be holy, meaning it's to be the context and the place where you can experience full human flourishing, everything you were meant to be and to do. And the context of that happens, the reason, the ultimate goal is for his glory. So notice there in that last little phrase in verse 5, that he did all this, predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his, God's pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he lavished on us. He blessed us. He poured out upon us. And this is really hard to translate. It's like, is it in the beloved one, in the one whom he loves, in his son? And what you see here is this image of God the Father. I love the phrase, just he lavishes. He's pouring it out. You know, I don't know what your conception of the Father is and his mercy, but he's not up there in heaven taking, I don't even know what those little things are. We use it to drip like medicine in our kids' ears, those little bubble things. He's not just doing these little bitty drips of mercy. He's pouring it out. Like he doesn't serve up the the river of life in little bitty Dixie cups. He pours it out upon us. It's lavish. It's kind of like our Easter egg hunt where we just take, it's not even a hunt. We just take hundreds of eggs, just throw them on the ground. just pick them up. And they, you know, their baskets are overflowing with these plastic eggs. What generosity filled with candy. It's this lavishness. And that's what we're seeing here. The apostle Paul saying he has lavished us where these blessings are just poured out and your heart like that basket is not big enough to hold it all in, but go get it. See it. It's lavish. A while back I was reading about of uh, a group of Aztec Indians in uh, southwest Mexico, and part of that kind of their worldview is they thought like goodness was a zero-sum game. So they would never wish you well or say, have a good day, because there's only so much goodness to go around, and if you have a good day, I might not. So I, and so it was just an interesting sociological study of what it's like in a community where everybody is out for themselves. It's actually not all that much different than modern-day America. And... But the beautiful thing is that God's grace and generosity is not a zero-sum game. It's not like, you know, the economy of grace is not working on supply and demand. It's lavish, and he pours it out. And notice what Paul, he's caught up to the praise. This is what it's all for. It's all ultimately for the praise of his glorious grace that he lavishes on us as we're in the beloved one. And this is just one of those things that just kind of the theological depths of this reality, we just don't have a mental ability to conceive of. And when we were going through John 17, you know, luckily for me, we only did it in two Sundays, so didn't have to really get into the depths of what he's saying here. Because what he's saying is that you experience all of this, the life of the Trinity. It's one of the reasons we love the name Trinity, because we feel like it's, it is at the core of all reality. Everything that is good is an echo of it, and everything that's bad is a deviation from it. And salvation, he's saying you've been drawn into the beloved one, and now if you're in the beloved one, the love that the Father has for the Son is actually the love he has for you. 
And the glory that the Son brings the Father is actually the glory you bring the Father. And the mission the Son has sent on into the world is actually now your mission because you've been brought into this life of the Trinity. And the more you think about it, the more staggering that is. That's what we want to do in worship, to have just a moment through the Word of God by the, to encounter the risen Son through the Spirit to be drawn into that Trinitarian life. You know, and if you've ever been around people where you just, you get around them and kind of their joy is so infectious, like you leave their presence more joyful. You think, man, why, why, don't, I, why don't we hang out with them more often? Because I leave feeling better about life. And that's just, that's an echo. That is just a shadow and echo of the reality of salvation because the Trinity existed in this mutual love for one another and then we get drawn into it. And it's so stabilizing and transforming. This summer, some of the couple of ladies have been reading a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it has just been wrecking Cynthia and I. It was so good. we got to find it. Everybody needs to read. We have a church-wide book club at our house. Come on over. We'll, we'll, we'll have it at our house. And it's so good. But it's about Rosaria Butterfield. It's about Christian hospitality. Kind of open up your home. Um, the gospel comes with a house key. And she was uh, telling the story about a kid uh, named Zion, who was a member of their church. Um, he's allowed out of prison for five hours. He gets five hours out every other week. And you know where he spends those five hours? He goes with them to church and then to their house for lunch afterwards. Can you imagine? You get five hours of freedom every other week. Where are you going? He's going to church and into their house for lunch afterwards. And it was on Thanksgiving, and he was sitting beside her, and she tells the story this way. He said he was unusually quiet. And you know, this is a big kind of tough kid. He said he was unusually quiet and subdued. He had tears bubbling up in his eyes. Then we passed the potatoes, and his eyes locked mine. And he said, I've never been in a home before. I mean, it's been a long time. No, no, I've never. I've never been in a home. Not one like this. With love, with Christ, with brothers, with sisters, with children. And I belong here. And she was taken back because she thought, well, Zion, you've been in our home a bunch of times. Why? Why just now? And, and it started kind of, his story started just all coming flooding out. She said it was just a life marked by broken promises, loved ones lost, insurmountable collateral damage, and just dysfunction upon dysfunction. And the first time he realized, like, I'm home. I'm safe. I'm around people who love me. And what he was experiencing is the first time in his life he was experiencing. That is an aroma. That's an echo. That's an aroma from your heavenly home that you were made to dwell in the presence of the triune God. And for the first time in his life, he's, he's sensing that savor. I don't know if you've ever traveled. And this happened to Cynthia and I when we traveled. And we were in China for three weeks. And it was, um, I'm a southern kid. So... Fried food and cornbread and biscuits, that's a standard fare. And we were traveling, so we were in kind of like the hinterlands of China. So it was, it was bitter melon and hot pot uh, for three weeks, and that was tough on me. And so as a, just a concession, our team leader on the last night when we got into Beijing, you know where they, they took us? They took us to Outback. And I know that's Australian, but it's, a, it's close enough. <laughs> and we walk into Outback, and I just... 
I am home. <laughs> Finally, I, I am home. And that's exactly what Zion's soul was feeling for the first time when he entered this, this, this arena of love and care. It was just this heavenly sense of, I'm home. And this is what it means to be drawn in to this family. And so this is what we see here. Now, as we kind of transition, I want you to think it's only in the Trinity that you can find the family that your hearts always long for. And we can find echoes and traces uh, in other places, but it's only here. And what Paul wants the Ephesian church and our church and every healthy church to be is to be a place where you can enter in and you can sense that aroma of this is a savor of my true home. So this summer, as we're going through these passages, just a couple of ways you can kind of help um, work it into your life is one thing that might be really helpful for you. If you're just in a season of, of discouragement and frustration and depression and the darkness has descended, it might be helpful to read through Ephesians, especially 1 through 3, and look at all the things that Paul says, this is true of you. It doesn't matter how you feel right now, or it doesn't matter what you've either done or accomplished or haven't accomplished, or it doesn't matter if your life is not panning out the way you thought it would or hope it would. This is true. And let the reality where he says he has blessed you in the heavenlies with every spiritual blessing. That's already true. That's true of you right now. You don't have to wait for that reality. So if you are in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. And if you have that, do you realize how rich you are? It doesn't matter if you can't pay the rent next month. Do you realize the wealth you have at your disposal because you've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing? And hold on to that. And just walk through and say, what are all these things that he says are true? We're in him. He chose us. He predestined us. It's adoption as sons. Uh, we're being brought in and made partakers of all of this. So if you're a Christian, do you realize your riches? Ask the Lord to help you to realize this as we go through it. Don't be um, paralyzed by the tyranny of the I ain't gots. Well, we ain't got this. We ain't got that. Look and see what you do have in him. And then if you're not a Christian this morning, you know, it's no accident you're here. We don't believe in like random things. Look, he's chosen you before the foundation of the world. And one of the ways he brings these things about is he brings people and places into your life to take you places to hear his word and encounter his coincidence. So wouldn't you like to enter it according to Ephesians 2 into this world as children of wrath? And then by his grace, we get transformed into children, adopted sons and adopted daughters. And that happens through faith and repentance what we, in essence, celebrate every week when we come to the communion table. So we're going to take a few minutes and just kind of pause and ask the Lord to pray these realities into our heart, and then we're going to come to the table. So Lord, we just pause right now, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gifts that we have in your Son, purchased by him, uh, planned by the Father, purchased by the Son, and then uh, given to us through the power of the Spirit. And we ask that you would help us. Help us to know them. Pray for anyone who's come in here this morning and they're just discouraged, they're, they're downcast, they're depressed. I ask that you would lift their gaze up and help them to see you, who you really are, and help them to see themselves as they really are in you.